Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians talks about body image. I cringe a little most times I say the words body image. Our world is obsessed with body image. That's, of course, a lot different from how it is used in a sermon. The body image is how the apostle describes the church of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 is the most extensive exposition of that. It's in the middle of that image that we find one of these, one another, texts that are sprinkled throughout the New Testament. Interestingly, this one is still in the context of his description of the body, but already he's beginning to take, make clear connections to the church. It's also in the context of love. We could say that the umbrella one another command in the New Testament is love one another, and all the other one another passages fall under that. We stop our reading at the end of chapter 12. The next chapter is, of course, that well-known chapter about love. I will, still show, I will show you a still more excellent way is the way of love. The function of the body is to be done in love. And that puts this one another text, too, under the umbrella of love. It's not specifically a command this time, but a clear purpose statement. God's purpose. It's his purpose that the members of the body would have the same care for one another in love. That's where we are going this morning under the following theme. Have the same care for one another because of where God put us and because of why God put us there. Because where God put us. The Apostle Paul uses a notable word in our text, but God has so composed the body. He could have said created, or made, or put together, or some other similar word, or a combination of words. But he uses the word composed. God composed the body. In English, that might bring certain things to mind. Think of music composers. They put instruments and meters and notes and chords and timing and all this together to produce a certain kind of harmony, a beautiful piece of music when all the different elements are brought together. The word composing, in this sense, has the idea of harmony in it. Something that's composed is intended to affect harmony. God didn't just create the body, says Paul. He composed the body. He composed it to affect harmony. And it's true, isn't it? The apostles come into the end of his analogy in 1 Corinthians 12. In verse 27, he writes, Now you are the body of Christ. We well know what he's working up to. But it's still helpful to pause here for a moment over the description of the body the physical body, because it's going to illustrate his point. God has so composed the body. This composition is what David is singing about in Psalm 139, which we just sang. It's enough to send a tingle down your spine every time you read it, isn't it? The words, for you, formed in my inmost parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. 
knitted together in my mother's womb. Now, I'm no knitter, but I have a lot of respect for those who do. It's quite a feat every time, stitch by stitch, row by row. I probably told you this before, but I know a young couple who was expecting a child. In anticipation of the baby's arrival, she got to knitting a warm blanket, stitch by stitch, row by row. When the Lord took the baby home during the course of the pregnancy, she laid it aside. If God has finished his knitting, she said, so was she. Then that image really struck me. God's composing is his knitting of our body together in the womb, stitch by stitch, row by row. Fearfully and wonderfully made. And then I have to think, how much did David know? How much did the Apostle Paul know? As the years have passed since then, God has allowed us to look even more deeply into these things. And our amazement is only more profound, so complex, so intricate, how it all fits together, how it all works together, how it's all held together. Yes, the Apostle Paul has chosen an appropriate word, for God so composed the body. Some of the catechism students might know that I might be tempted to go off on a longer tangent here, to take a few examples and run with it. Love God's creative handiwork. Just briefly, I read an article this past week about all that has to happen to an outfielder to catch a ball in baseball. Some of you probably watched the World Series in the past. You might not think twice about the center fielder making a mad dash across the field to reel in a fly ball. But from the moment the ball leaves the pitcher's hand, closely observed by the fielder, to the moment that ball smacks into the leather of his glove, after being hit by the batter, an incredible number of things are happening in the body, from the eyes, to the brain, to the legs, knees, muscles, to the arms, balance, unconsciously calculating timing, positioning, distances, parabolic curves. And if, if it all doesn't all work in harmony, it's not going to have the desired effect. Understanding the eye alone in that process is spellbinding. Or the human hand, what a composition. Of course, in this groaning creation and in the corruption because of sin, sometimes a body is composed differently. Composed in such a way that it doesn't work quite the same, or as well, or really at all. But that doesn't take away from the Apostle's point. Actually, we could say it underlines it. Because one thing he says very emphatically, emphatically, for God so composed the body. The way the body's put together, just so, is God's work. He and his alone. He never makes a mistake. He never gets something wrong. His hand never slips to compose something accidentally. He composes very purposely, meaningfully. And that's to be illustrated for the church in Corinth. It's to be an illustration for the church in grace. God has so composed the body. God takes the different parts, the many different parts, and puts them all together with harmony in mind. And then, it, and then, and then it's also striking that the last thing he mentions about the body before making that connection to the church is what we read in verse 24. 
giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. All the parts are important. But we hide away what is what but we hide away, as it were, parts that are either unpresentable or need to be treated with greater modesty. What does it have to do with the church? Well, doesn't it happen in church life too that we have supposedly presentable parts and unpresentable parts? Or at least that's the way we perceive it. Suppose you were to take a guest along to church. Who do you want them to meet? Who are the so-called presentable parts? Who is the face of the church? Maybe you introduce them to the pastor. Maybe you bring them to meet your ward elder. Maybe you point them out to the one who runs a reputable business and is that you know down the street from them. This is the way we sometimes honor the parts of the body. Doesn't that have a possible danger? The danger of leaving the impression that in this church we have things all together? We've got things figured out without intending to suggest the minister and the elder and the businessmen actually have it all figured out. Last week the question was asked, is the church a safe place? Is this a safe place to bear one another's burdens, to carry together and struggle against sin, to acknowledge weaknesses and brokenness, to trust in another's honesty and support when we make ourselves vulnerable? Isn't that what ought to go on in the church? Here's a quote that has a rich history but an uncertain origin. The church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum of saints. What would you think, someone wrote, if you saw someone at a country club on a gurney with an IV in their arm? You would immediately conclude that they have the wrong address. They belong in the hospital. I wonder how many people show up at our churches on a given Sunday thinking they are coming to a place of care and healing only to discover they have the wrong address and are instead in the country club. A country club is where socially well-adjusted people gather to chit-chat and take a break from the cares of the world. You don't go there if you have a deathly ill, if you are deathly ill or your arm is broken. What do you think? Let's ponder that point. Suppose you take a guest to church. Would you bring them or her to be introduced to your brother, whom you know is struggling with depression? To a sister you are aware is stressed out over the task of mothering? To the couple you've been encouraging as they work through a difficult stretch in their relationship? Our human inclination might be to say, they are the unpresentable parts. Yet God gives them the greater honor. God chose the weak things, the foolish things, the small things, the things that are not. It's when we are weak that we are strong. Isn't it there in weakness, in struggle, in darkness, that the comfort of the gospel is often the most talked about, the most closely held to, the most rewardingly rewardingly believed, and the most well-spoken of? What an opportunity to show, to share the impact of the gospel when we meet someone who is open about a struggle, who finds strength in Christ. This sinner 
has come to the hospital. What a chance to experience the richness of God's grace when we're introduced to someone who shares willingly of their comfort in Christ in a struggle with loss. And the examples could continue. That is what what can come to mind when we hear our text say, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. It's not a body of people who have it all together. It's not a body of people who are well-adjusted. It's not a body of people who are honored in the eyes of the world. Yet God has so composed the body. He puts it together just so. It's not a club. It's not an association. It's not a league. It's a body composed by God of different parts. Even so-called unpresentable parts that receive greater honor. It's a living, breathing organism. Every part critical to the life of the whole. That's an important counterbalance to the prevailing spirit of our time too. Yes, it's important to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We impress that on our children too. They have to come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, to cling for themselves to the covenant promises which are theirs, confirmed in their baptism. Each of us, not our parents, not our siblings, will have to take ownership of this. But sometimes the pendulum swings too far the other w- that way, and it's all about personal relationship and not a Christ relationship. But God has so composed the body. He takes all these individual parts and puts them together as a whole, a beautiful whole. He composed it in his grace. A collection of broken sinners made saints, members of the body, all under the headship of Jesus Christ. Where has God put me, I might ask myself. It's not just about me and how I flourish or not in my relationship with him. Where has he put me? He's put me here, in this, con- in this area of the country, in this church, territory even, if you will. And what does that mean for me? God has so composed the body by placing me here, right now. God so composed the body here in Winnipeg by placing this collection of members together, right here, right now. No mistakes. No accidents. No very purposely, very intentionally, the presentable, the unpresentable, the strong, the weak, however we want to draw out that analogy. Because God has a purpose in doing that as our text goes on to teach. And that comes out in our second point. Because of why God has put us there. Verse 25 gives the purpose. It's a purpose that comes out from two angles, the negative and the positive. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, and that there may be no division in the body. It's one of the concerns that the apostle is dealing with in this letter. It comes, it comes, out, right about, it comes out right away in chapter 1. I follow Paul. I follow Caiaphas, I follow Apollos, I follow Christ. And again, in chapter 11, when he has to admonish them about the Lord's Supper, they don't want to wait for each other. They just go ahead and eat and drink. The one goes hungry, 
the other gets drunk. How is that possible when we compare it to our Lord's Supper? We can't get into it here. It's just to point out how Paul has to tackle this issue in Corinth. Division in the body. Cliques have developed. Different groups. Different camps, if you will. They have no care or concern for one another. The body of Christ there is fragmenting. If we wanted to keep with the image of the body, then the words of the apostle uses gives us a graphic word picture. Actually, the word Paul uses is one we use in English, schism. A schism in the body is a tearing of limb from limb. In Matthew 9, verse 16, Jesus talks about how no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. You get the picture, that tearing cloth. That same word, that same word is here, division is a tear. In a body, it is really ripping a limb from limb. God so composed the body that there would be no tearing of limb from limb. We get that in our bodies, right? When the apostle touches on something similar in Ephesians 4, he writes about how it is held together by every joint, by tendons and ligaments. God so composed the body with all these vastly different parts, so that it wouldn't be separated limb from limb, but held together. We get that. But what about the church? Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. What applies to the human body, Paul is saying, applies to Christ's body in the church. God has so composed the body with all of these vastly different parts, so that it wouldn't be separated limb from limb. That seems rather contrary to our institution, doesn't it? I get that in the body, but in the church? Isn't it just asking for trouble when you put so many different people together? So many different gifts? So many different talents? So many different ideas? So many different opinions, etc.? Isn't it very natural that you end up with different cliques, different groups? Natural, perhaps. But which nature? The sinful nature. It's sin, that, it's sin that brought brokenness into the human body. It's sin in the world that means that there are handicaps and limitations physically and mentally. It's sin in the world that means sometimes a body doesn't quite work as it ought to, or as we might think. It ought to. Well, that doesn't change the purpose. He put it together this way so that it wouldn't be torn limb from limb, that there would be no division in the body. Now you are the body of Christ, fearfully and wonderfully made, Christ the head, we the members, all knit together by the gracious work of our sovereign Lord, made possible in the blood of Christ. And God so composed the body that there may not be any division. God put all things, God put all these parts together purposely so that the different kinds of people with different backgrounds, different environments, different struggles, different temperaments would not break apart but be held together. How? That's the positive angle at the end of verse 25. 
but that the members may have the same care for one another. Same care, equal concern. Remember in this verse, Paul is actually talking, still talking specifically about the body. It's not until verse 27 that he clearly makes a connection to the church. In the physical human body, you have this too, don't you? Maybe he wouldn't quite put it that, this way, that the members have a care for one another, but something like that goes on. Isn't it true that when someone experiences limitation in one part of their body, others often fill the gap? The blind have a heightened sense of hearing, for example. Or how about without the use of their hands, who's been able to create amazing paintings using their feet? It's also interconnected. The Apostle says in verse 26, by way of example, if one member suffers, all suffer together. And that's true physically, isn't it? Bad back affects the whole body. Struggling with mental illness can leave you with no physical energy. And what about the other? If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Again, maybe we don't talk this way about the body, but we might get the point. Have you ever been moved to tears of joy by an incredibly beautiful piece of music? The ear is honored by the sound it hears, and the body rejoices together. Or how about a spectacular vista that takes your breath away or sends a tingle down your spine? Isn't that a form of rejoicing? How? God so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that the members have the same care for one another. Now you are the body of Christ. The apostle would have the Corinthians reflect on that in the church. We're given to division, separation, because of the differences between us. I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, etc., We're given by nature, by sinful nature, to move to cliques, sides. But God put us together so that that wouldn't happen, but that we would have the same care for one another, that we would be bound tightly together, the many different members, through care for one another, concern for one another. Like what? What does that mean? What does that look like? We use the word concern in different ways, don't we? Interestingly, the word the apostle uses here is the same word as Jesus uses when he talks about worry and anxiety. Don't be anxious about your life. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. There is a wrong way of being concerned. But that concern and this concern has something in common. It's what's occupying your mind. God so composed the body so that the members could be, would occupy each other's minds, not in a negative way, but positive, to be interested in each other, to show love to one another, to nurture, to teach, train, equip, and support fellow members. How do you care for the others? Doesn't it often start with realizing your own need for care? We need God. We need Christ. We need other people. That requires humility to admit. But then we might start by asking for prayer. Care through prayer. 
and blessed by that, we move towards each other. How can you care unless you show interest, genuine interest? Isn't it that God has demonstrated His care when He came in His Son, Jesus Christ? God takes the initiative. He moves towards His people in care. Think of Jesus, how He talked about pursuing the lost sheep. He pursues us, moves towards us. We pursue one another, move to one another. Jesus moves towards us while we were enemies, while we were still sinners. With the work of Christ in our minds, care means we are no longer only move, moving towards the people who are easier to talk to. We move to the quieter ones, the ones we know we might not see eye to eye. We move there too, among other things. Listen. Then we'll be mindful of how we react to things we hear, we learn. Sharing means vulnerability. Maybe you've experienced it. How when, someone, how when we share something and it's not received or it's ignored or worse, ridiculed, will we be quick to share again? Ever again? How can we suffer together and rejoice together unless we know one another? Know each other from the heart. Canadians are wonderful at the cl cl cliché conversations. Hey, how's it going? Fine. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks. You? Will that suffice here? No. Tell me how you're really doing. I've got time. Does that not express care? Concern? Then we could talk about our joys, our sorrows, our rejoicing, our struggling from the heart. Then we can bear one another up before the throne of God in prayer. Just imagine a church, the body, so composed by God, the members moving towards each other, interested in each other, expressing care for one another. Imagine that a testimony that bears in Imagine that a testimony that bears to the world we live in, where the self reigns supreme, where individualism is lauded and triumphed. Imagine what opportunity to speak of Christ, how such a diverse body is joined as one another under the headship of Christ. Because, of this, because this is hard, isn't it, beloved? It's hard work to have to care for one another. But as the Apostle goes on to say at the end of this chapter, it's the way of love. It's only possible with love. Again, we said it, love one another. It's the umbrella command. Under it is also this, have the same care for one another. Care that is rooted in love. Love because God first loved us in Jesus Christ. Then our care for one another is a reflection of the love of God in Christ, and it's our way of expressing love to Jesus Christ. Paul says about Timothy in Philippians 2, verse 20, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. In other words, Timothy is genuinely concerned for their welfare, is seeking the interest in Jesus Christ. This is our aim. This is our command. That we have the same care for one another, seeking 
in that way the interests of Jesus Christ. He is worthy. Amen.